0: Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA. And on the Pacifica Radio Network, we're available on most podcast venues, and that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. And here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCann. And we're here to uh, do another one of these New Yorker poem sessions. And uh, in this case, we are looking at a poem by Joy Harjo. And it was published, I guess, in the first week or so of October. And the poem is entitled Without. And here is Joy Harjo reading the poem for us.
1: Without. The world will keep trudging through time without us. When we lift from the story contest to fly home, we will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. Maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature And know why half the world fights righteously for greedy masters, and the other half is nailing it all back together, through the smoke of cooking fires, lovers' trysts, and endless human industry. Maybe then, beloved rascal, we will find each other again in the timeless weave of breathing. We will sit under the trees in the shadow of Earth's sorrows, watch hyenas drink rain, and laugh. Hmm.
2: Mm.
3: It's funny that she gives a little laugh at the end.
1: Yeah, I, I
2: like that. A, a it,
0: slight I, laugh. I like
2: that. It, uh, it avoided that somber poetry voice.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. I I was struck by her kind of. I wanted to say, peeling off that last bit with the with the kind of laughing in, interjection. Yeah. Interjection. Yeah. kind of a kind of laughing thing at the end but i was interested to hear that in some measure at least how she started out she sounded a little bit like bernadette mayer reading hmm i didn't yeah i don't remember
3: bernadette reading that well yeah
0: is joy harjo a bit of a hippie
3: oh a hippie Hmm. that's not how i would think of her i have a personal reminiscence of joy harjo if if now is the time to give it.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I was just going to yeah. say, I in my sort of hippie reference, I guess she's probably in her seventies. Is the take mm. I have. So I yeah, think she's so. got some generational thing with, say, Alice Notley and Bernadette and. Oh, I see. Waldman. The, the way yeah. she
2: reads.
0: I mean. Yeah. I just just heard a little bit of Bernadette there, and at this hmm. at the outset. Do you want to tell your story, get it out of the way? I
3: guess so, yeah. I mean, I was living in Denver for about five months in 1985. And I went to a tiny demonstration. I can see it very clearly in my mind. And Joy Harjo was there. It was a demonstration maybe having to do with Native Americans. I don't remember what it was about. There were about like six people there, very near where I was living in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Denver. And already Joy Harjo was a famous poet. And I was impressed and very pretty. And I was impressed that she went to this tiny demonstration and she definitely read a poem. Except maybe it wasn't her. You know, my my memory is not so strong. But I did get, if it was her, I did get the sense that she's really committed political person who would go to this minuscule demonstration. And, uh, you know, she was very impressive as a figure. I think she read one poem. I just felt she had everything. Uh, commitment, talent as a poet, humility. She was utterly unaffected. She she was really, a seemed a very, the word dynamic comes to mind. A, a admirable person, except it's possible I just imagine the whole thing. But I'm pretty sure I remember this. If well, she's she, listening uh, to this, she might remember aside,
0: this. Aside, aside from imagining all of this, do you perceive in this poem some of these attributes that you identified 35 plus or minus years ago? Yeah, um, I mean that's a very good point. I mean
3: that's one of the things I liked about the poem is. That for for The New Yorker, it might be one of the most successful political poems ever in The New Yorker. I th- I, to me, I felt like the poem goes nowhere for about five or six lines. I was pretty much ready to give up on it as another piece of New Yorker crap. And then suddenly it becomes, with this line, maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature. From then on, it becomes, I think, a very good poem. And the um, way she talks about politics, half the world fights righteously for greedy masters, and the other half is nailing it all back together. I just think it's a really strong, simple, clear, compelling way to describe the current political chaos. Uh huh. Okay. I like mean, it's written by someone who does seem to have a real commitment to i don't know what the word is now but it used to be social change
0: hmm right yeah it's interesting the two-minded creature i mean i guess if one were to look at that first i mean i don't think of the human design as being two-brained i of course think of it as being three-brained oh um and it, at least, you know, we're, we are, in truth, myriad-minded and are completely fluid, you know, in our potentiality. But then she uses the two-minded creature, and then, you know, one thinks of two minds as being like the heart and the brain, these two mm. mental centers, say. And I guess, you know, she carries that over into this sense of, and no why half, so she repeats that word half. Very hmm. similar, not very similar, but a little bit like half life in exile, you know, that sense of the hmm. half.
4: Hmm.
0: Um, Two minded, one half fights, one half, uh, half the world fights righteously for greedy masters. Uh, yeah, yeah, hard to gainsay that for sure. It does feel that way. And then the other half is nailing it all back together. I did like that. Um, you know, to the extent that one half is sort of like eroding or creating division or keeping people apart so that they can be controlled. And then the other half is repairing the damage that's done. It's a little bit like Penelope,
4: you know, <laughs> weaving,
0: um, weaving by day and then destroying by night. You know, and I do like the smoke of cooking fires, lovers' trysts, and endless human industry. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that part is, um, you know, like a complete statement. I would agree politically, and maybe otherwise.
3: Yeah, I was watching on Twitter today. There was a five-minute video of the January sixth insurrection that I'd never seen before, so I watched it. And it was a reporter, maybe an English reporter, I think it was the Telegraph, was the newspaper that was presenting this video. And the reporter is kind of in the midst of these uh, guys, and a few women, who really are, I mean, you you know, they're shouting through megaphones. They really are uh, literally... Fighting righteously for greedy masters, they're shouting, "This is our house! This is the people's house! These mm-hmm. people work for us. We pay our taxes." You know, they're just full of righteous indignation and a, and a sort of a flaming fire of uh, virtuous uh, democracy, while they fight literally for this greedy asshole who is their president.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally direct uh, and and no doubt joy conscious of that you know possible association or positing the um messed up frame that we you know one half of the world is seeing things through.
2: You know two-minded it's, creature, it's a biblical illusion as well. I don't know if that's what um uh, Joy Hardjo had in mind but ooh. in the um, Pauline corpus in Paul's letter to James Human beings are referred to as two-minded. But I don't know if that's what she had in mind, but it did, it did come to my mind when I was reading the poem. Uh-huh. It, it's more of a universal reflection on the human condition hmm. uh, in the biblical context that Mm-mm. human beings are um, creatures of certitude, but
0: also creatures of doubt. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's that phrase being of two minds. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and and which which would seem complementary to Paul's insight. The grammar
3: of the sentence made me wonder when she says, "Maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature and know why half the world fights righteously." Mm. Uh-huh. Could be that the two-minded creature is God. The design of the two-minded creature sounds like the design of the Creator. And mm-hmm. would, I, that's one way to read it. Mm. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. that's a little heretical to think of God as as being two-minded. Minded.
0: Well, the key insight about the nature of the Judeo-Christian God is that he's monocular. He mm. he's, um, only has one eye.
3: Well, actually, the Jewish tradition is that there's the left hand of God and the right hand of God. I read some right. book about this somewhere, and... One hand of God. I think maybe the left hand is justice and the right hand is mercy. It's the opposite of what you would expect in Mm. the way we formulate things, where the right hand is considered the more rationalistic hand, the left hand the more imaginative,
0: creative hand. When you approach the divine, everything is backwards. (laughs) You know, I... I, um... You know, I kind of wanted to just look at this line by line. I don't know if that sounds too plodding.
3: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Well, you see i the first line, the world will keep trudging through time without us. Mm-hmm. So the world, so she has the distinction between earth and world. She understands world to be you know in its its original cognate of sort of the age of of where, of man, where of humans. And then we'll keep trudging through, so she's trudging, the trudging through time, which I think is sort of a throw toward the other half, nailing it back together, this sort of idea of the trudging, you know, doing the real Mm -hmm. work. And then we'll keep trudging through time, through time without us. I I had a little bit of trouble with the keep trudging through. I thought this line might have been better, the world will keep time without us. I, but then it, would, then
3: it would seem to imply that the world is playing music.
0: Yeah. And, yeah, that's sort of where I guess I would put things. So that's, this isn't my poem. And then, um, without us. Now, the nature of us, I think, is is super duper interesting, you know, because it comes up later. And then mm. I actually liked this next line, uh, when we lift from the story contest to fly home, I'm not the greatest fan of home because I, I think she's implying, uh, kind of a post mortal, a post mortal condition of home. That's sort of like, uh, maybe a, uh, heaven or, mm. um, or it's like an Orphic cult thing that we get our wings back. Um, it's interesting. But I like this idea that I think a lot of our lives is sort of like a story contest. That's an an interesting insight. You know, we're all building these stories. You know, who's got the better story at the end of it all? It's interesting.
3: might be true of our podcast. It might be a story contest between the three of us to see who can come up
0: with the best story in both the literal and metaphorical sense. Yeah, I'm not much of a I, – I don't tell stories that much, Sparrow. Mm. I think that you would um be uh, acoustic there. You are then, the venerable
3: storyteller of the three yeah. of us. <laughs> I do like to tell stories even as of today when I did not even know for sure if the story was real. I was perfectly happy to keep telling it.
4: Mm-hmm. But, I mean,
3: in the sense that we're all explicating texts or – Telling something about
0: the world in the sense we're all telling stories, the three of us. Mm -hmm. And then this third line, I I thought there was the the way in which she read it slightly changed my understanding of the line. We will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. Mm. I thought, you know, I thought that the edge referred to the edge of creation but it's actually the way in which she read it from the edge of grief and heartbreak so there's it's an interesting suppos- proposition that grief and heartbreak bring us to a kind of edge yeah. from which we're able to see the passing of others the us um as one might see a falling star you know which is a very brief period of time
2: Right. Yeah. Doesn't the edge I'm really speaking with no knowledge here. I should have looked into this. I, I don't know anything about Joy Harjo, but if she is um a Native American, um could this be a reference to Native American cosmology um in in terms of an understanding of where the earth ends well and where um what do you mean, ends uh, physically or, or yeah, temporally? Ends, ends physically. You uh, like I mean they believed eating in eating a flatter? Yeah. Yeah, way. I
3: must say, I have this friend who's a, a Sioux Indian, um, Gale Two Eagles, and I saw her a few weeks ago, and she told me, just happened to mention, that when people die, they go to the Pleiades. I think mm. her father pointed to the Pleiades and said, this is, this is our home. I think maybe she used the word home. So oh I did my find God. myself I don't I don't know that uh, joy is a, a Sioux, but uh, I did find myself thinking of that when, with
0: the line uh, about flying home. Wow, that's so interesting. My mom, she I think we were we were not in Washington, we were out of the city. It might have even been a long time ago in 1981-82, and we were in Puerto Rico on the beach, and she pointed to the Pleiades. She said, Sam, do you see those stars? That's the Pleiades. That's where I'm from.
3: Maybe she studied the Sioux knowledge, or just, maybe it's true, maybe we are from the Pleiades. It seems as reasonable as anything.
0: Yeah, the Pleiades are a super-duper... Intense and, and beautiful constellation. There's something preternaturally improvisational at the same time, hmm. seemingly deeply organized about the Pleiades constellation. Anyway, I still don't like these yeah. first four lines. I uh, uh uh-huh.
3: I, I I just don't like dumb uh, metaphors or whatever the word is, similes. Uh huh the world will keep trudging through time without us. Like, it just seems, in mm-hmm. other words, the earth moving around the sun is kind of trudging. Like, how is that trudging? I don't see how the world is trudging. It doesn't make any sense to me as a as an image. And yeah, then, I think it's mm, I do, then too. Then we think will live from life. the story. I mean, it's basically a series of incredible mixed metaphors. Like, if you handed this in to your teacher in fifth grade, she would just circle the whole thing and just tell you to grow up, you know? Like, while the world is trudging, we are going to lift from a story contest and fly. Then we're going to be like falling stars. How are people flying like falling stars? Falling stars are going down. Flying people are going up. To those watching from the edge, you know, it doesn't make any, I don't know, I just feel like you can't just mm-hmm. say anything is, look, is like anything and expect that to be a poem. You know, people that are really great, like, uh, Elizabeth Bishop, who makes these amazing similes and metaphors that are exactly like, she'll tell you what a horseshoe crab is like. And it's my God, it is exactly like a three pairs of scissors opening and closing or whatever she says. You know, you're just like stunned mm-hmm. how, how apt and perfect they are. And these are just corny, dumb
0: metaphors that everybody
3: uses. Yeah, it's a little
0: soupy, but we kind of get the gist of it, which is that there's an us and there's a world. I agree trudging is dopey. I think that, again, it it references the other half that is repairing the world, this sort Mm -hmm. of drudge, you know, of like picking up something that's broken, fixing it, moving on. But I don't I think agree. it's, it's gonna be the
3: other half of us if they if if it's without us. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Unless
3: us are the assholes of uh, fighting righteously for greedy masters. I
2: think hmm. it I think that that is us. I, I, I see the, the, the two minded piece as being um a universal statement that on some level, even if we virtue signal otherwise or even if we stand for uh, pro human values. You know, we we walk around with these shadows and contradictions and we hurt people. We inflict scars upon ourselves. So you're it's saying like,
0: the us is the these two halves. One half is one way, the other half is the other way, and that constitutes two, which is us. Is that what you're saying?
2: That, yeah, but that may be more of my own projection when it comes to human beings than anything that's in the poem. It is a reading
3: that I think can be borne out. I think it's a reading that you can't deny, but I really doubt that that's what she meant. I think she, just if she was that person standing next to me at this minuscule demonstration, I think she feels that she's not fighting righteously for greedy masters, though, in a sense, you could argue, and come to think of it, I've been published in The New Yorker, too, that to publish a (laughs) poem in The New Yorker is to fight righteously for greedy bastards. I don't know how greedy they are, but whoever it is, Condé Nast who runs the New Yorker, they're not trying to lose money.
2: <laughs> I've just been—I think I've been reading and thinking about Sophocles too much. Uh, uh, and, you know, how Oedipus thinks that he's good, does these wonderful things you know, to liberate right. Thebes and to try to um, avert disaster, but in the end, he participates in the, the very sickness that he's trying to eradicate. And I mm. think that it's, it's a profound uh, reflection on human complexity, how we are these two-minded creatures. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, and even Bob Dylan, you know, as we've touched on, you know, everybody, you know, we have to serve somebody, and it yeah, might be the think, devil, I and it he's... might be the the Lord, the Lord both right. greedy masters, the devil <laughs> and the
3: Lord. He just, he, he thought that Religious people were the same as demon worshippers. I don't. Know. That's not how I hear. that. Scene.
0: yeah, necessarily. <laughs> the other entity that is brought brought out in this poem is the one whom she ascribes as beloved rascal. Yeah, that's interesting. That beloved yeah. rascal. Yeah, and I and I think that there's some sense of she and the beloved rascal um, have come to the edge and have done this little dance. They've gone above their story. Um, they've become these kinds of falling stars at the that's glimpsed at the edge of grief and heartbreak. Hmm. And then there's this opportunity. Maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature. Now, again, you know, this idea that we can't really see the totality of our lives until our, our lives are complete. You know, Mm. this sort of idea of set of all sets, the uh, Godot uh, notion, you know, that you can't have a complete understanding of the design from within the design. You have to get outside of it in order to perceive it,
4: Mm -hmm.
0: right? So I think that there's that kind of sense. And then there's some, you know, further proposition of a state in which, one is both in and out of not time, but I guess creation or something. We will find each other again. She and the beloved rascal or the narrator and the beloved rascal in the timeless weave of breathing, which I think is, hmm. you know, something we should bracket. Sort of interesting. We will sit under a tree, under the trees in the shadow of earth's sorrows. And in the shadow of earth, sorrows under the trees will sit. Watch hyenas drink water. So you sit under the tree, watch hyenas drink rain. So I think this idea of hyenas drinking rain, are their heads upturned? Is this a National Geographic moment? Hard Hmm. to say. Maybe hyenas, you know, when it rains, they put their heads up and drink rain and laugh. But that idea of lifting the head is a sort of exultant, like lifting up and mm-hmm. laugh and Yeah, laugh. It's,
3: it's funny because it begins with the world will keep trudging through time without us, which sort of implies that when the human race is over, when we all die, because we've killed ourselves with global warming or whatever, um, that the world is going to just trudge through time. It's going to be kind of miserable without us. We're kind of
0: keeping the Earth kind of amused. Just to pause, world and Earth are two distinct things. The Earth is not the world. The world has to do with the age of the human lair that resides on the surface of the Earth. But it's different. It's separate from the Earth. But the world,
3: well, I don't know how she's using the word world. I'm not sure she's following your logic because... The world will then, if the world is just people, like le monde in French means, like tout le monde means everybody. It means the world literally, but it really connotation, the way it's defined, means everybody. But if there's no people anymore, then there is no tout le monde. There is no world in that sense. It won't keep trudging through time because the world is something that we create by our awareness of it. Isn't that what you're saying?
0: (laughs) Earth spins. What does the world do? It, it is born, um, you know, <laughs> to go back to Oedipus, you know, it's, you know, on four legs, two legs, <laughs> and then three legs. And then, you know, you become a falling star.
3: <laughs>
0: then you get wings. Yeah. And, but
3: anyway, my point was that at first it seems like the world without us is going to be very dreary. It's just going to trudge around. Then mm. by the end, it's different. There's no more people now, and it's mm-hmm. full of these happy hyenas. So it's kind of like she's changing her mind. That's the sort of transformation that takes place in this poem. That, is it a sonnet? It may have 14 lines.
2: No, I it, thought I did. it's
0: not a sonnet. How many lines is it? Do you know, uh, 13 or 12. Oh. Yeah, it's interesting. Of 13, grief yeah. and heartbreak and human industry are all are, are both left justified you know, our lines, you know, in a kind of um, sanctioned way. At the you know, we we will be as falling stars to those to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. I don't know. I think it's a little I think the first four lines are a little sloppy to be honest.
3: Really, you're following my,
0: you're agreeing with my analysis. Well, I, have, I have sort of agreed with you. I mean, um, I, I just thought the lift away from the story contest was an interesting idea. You know, I think. Yeah, is, it is like, uh, yeah, it's a
3: nice phrase. Well, it, of, it's yeah. like your kind of phrase, actually.
0: Yeah. <laughs> is mm-hmm. it
2: possible that uh, I tend to agree with you on an aesthetic level, but I'm just going to um, put forward a reading here. Is it possible that this poem? Uh, contains two competing, two different theologies, if
4: you will. Mm. Um,
2: and the first one would be more of a, I guess, a secular humanist perspective. That uh, look, you're, we're we're in time, and then uh, we die, uh, we we fall off the the edge. People grieve. Um, the living may remember us for a time, uh, but but then she shifts into. Uh, what feels to be feels to me sort of a um um a, a different theological register where there is some kind of uh spirit afterlife, um, mm-hmm. some continuation of the uh, the soul or the prana, human energy, um, something continues on. And I mm-hmm. did notice uh, to to add some credibility to this, admittingly speculative reading, uh, there is a word in this poem that repeats quite a bit. And Mm. that word is will,
4: Mm. will, Mm. will,
2: will, 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 um, several times, one, Mm. two, three, four, five, six times, I believe. So the poem has a feeling of wish fulfillment um, Mm -hmm. on some level, Um, like uh, the poet's moving out of uh, a purely material Mm. uh, worldview to a more spiritual one. But there's this uh, quality of wish fulfillment.
0: Or, Um, Or futurity, you know, the future. We will, you know, we will, we will. And then
3: don't forget, there's the two maybes that are qualifying the uh, will. So mm-hmm. the, that's that's putting it more like a conditional, as I would say it. You know, the conditional doesn't exist so clearly in English.
4: Mm-hmm. The conditional
3: is like this may happen. Mm-hmm. She's not going to say may, partly because it's a bad word. But ah. so she says. Maybe we will instead of we may. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. That's really interesting because, because that contributes uh, to what I was saying earlier: the two-minded creature, the certainty and doubt. Oh yeah, um, that's interesting. The destabilization of, of the certitude of the will.
0: There is a condition of the
2: maybe um, creates like a, an interesting texture in the poem, and it's what I like most about it.
0: Mm. Mm. I mean to underscore your point, Andrew, that there appear to be two what you called theologies, um, you know, one being sort of practical or mundane and the other being um, um, hmm, um, being Mystical. mystical, grander. Yeah, something like that. You know, we have time in the first line and then in the you know, maybe then, beloved rascal, we will find each other again in the timeless weave mm, of breathing. Point, yeah. Now, that timeless weave of breathing is an interesting phrase. Yeah. Um, and one intimately associated anatomically to speech, to the sculpting mm. of air, you know, this, mm. this human capacity to shape words and to have syntax to have a future to have a past to have a present you know that time and language i believe that time emerges from language obviously i guess right
3: mm-hmm. um, and also we speak of, we speak of someone weaving a story mm-hmm. and this is the story contest that we're in according to her mm-hmm. this this world is the story contest, and she won the contest. They published her poem in the New Yorker.
0: <laughs> so the, the but the idea of breathing is one that does not have a contestual contestual. It doesn't. It's not part of a contest because
4: breathing
0: oh. is our common domain. Whether you mm. serve the master or you serve the integrity of this earth or the world the hammer and putting it back together yeah. um that the process of breathing I, I mean the truth is breathing is also associated with keeping time right hmm. yeah the, i mean i was when you think the time about it that you keep with breathing, breathing is maybe. circular you know it's in and out Mm. You know,
3: I was going to point out that uh, I was thinking about this, you know, trying to think for this podcast. And it struck me that Joy Harjo's name is circular. That, you know, the last two letters are the first two letters. Like you could write her name in a circle that mm-hmm. goes around forever. You know, I just thought I would bring that up. <laughs> that maybe why she thinks about the timeless joy, weave of breathing. Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I like this earth Sorrows, because Uh already she has the grief and heartbreak. I think that's why if we get rid of the first four lines, then you won't have that uh, repetition of grief, heartbreak and sorrows. It's it's too much sadness for one little poem like this. It seems too repetitious, plus grief, heartbreak and sorrows. Uh-huh. All, all so maybe
0: things. the maybe it should go the world will keep time without us. When we lift from the story contest to fly home, maybe then we will see the design of the two minded creature and know <clears throat> why half da da da. So we leave out those two lines, uh, you know, about the falling star and the grief and heartbreak save it for the end, maybe in the shadow of Earth's arrows. I also, you know, uh, squiggly lined and put a question mark there. I wasn't too crazy about that line, that phrase.
3: I would just start the poem, one day we'll see the design of the two-minded creature and know why half the world fights righteously for greedy masters. Like, just launch into it. Because I think, you know, it's difficult to write a poem and sometimes you have to write a few lines before you figure out what you're talking about. And uh-huh. the, the New Yorker's not going to take out your lines if you're the poet laureate of the United States. You know, did I ever tell you this story that I was sitting next to this guy, Everhart, Richard Everhart? I uh, know Richard Everhart. Is, yeah, I was at a more, this is a more distinct memory. We were at a reading together. I read and he read. It was an open reading to benefit something. And he was an old man in a rumpled suit, old man, probably younger than I am now. And he read his poem. And then he sat down kind of next to me, but, you know, six feet from me. And then he leaned over to me. I'm like a young hippie in torn jeans. And he said, what would you think of my poem? And I said, I thought it was a little didactic. And I couldn't believe that I could remember the word didactic. And then he he sort of sighed and he said, smiled, sighed and said, my problem is I can get anything published. (laughs) <laughs> what a great thing to say. He was such a decent guy. He looked like a pharmacist from Iowa. He was
0: a really decent guy. Um, and a pretty good uh, poet. Uh-huh.
2: He wrote, he wrote, a, wrote famous a famous
0: song, song yeah. that was four lines long and got oh. picked up and it was about a a sheep dead a sheep? on the side of the road, a sheep, a goat not a
3: groundhog he has a famous dead
0: groundhog groundhog jeepers but it wasn't a hyena which I think hyena is interesting it sort of echoes Blake a little bit in terms of Mm. his zoo morphology um, you know his use of animals to personify different human traits and then valorize them you know particularly the ones that we typically associate with negative attributes. Hmm. And uh yeah, the hyenas drink water, drink rain, the, the, watch hyenas drink rain and laugh. And I guess it's hard for us not to think of the hyenas as those men whom you saw, or men and a few women that you saw in that documentary, Sparrow. Yeah, you mean the ones um, fighting righteously for greedy capital. masters?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't
0: know if
3: they—if that's—I don't think that's what she means, so, though. But I—I I know what you mean. There is a little bit. I mean, isn't that a little bit of a what's the word? Cliché to say watch hyenas laugh—the <laughs> laughing hyena. But it sort of works somehow. In the, don't you think it's? I have to ask why Sandra this grammatically. When she says, "Watch hyenas drink rain, comma and laugh." Isn't it unclear whether the hyenas are laughing or the or we sitting under the
2: trees are laughing?
3: Mm-hmm. Does that comma resolve that problem?
2: Grammatically, yeah, it's ambiguous. I read it as we.
0: Yeah, me too. Yeah, her use of punctuation is not to be counted on. There's only one punctuation in the poem unless you count
3: that dash after human industry. Is
2: right. It? She could, yeah. I'm always making excuses for, for poets, I think, but, uh, seeing so much is purposeful. But, but is it possible that her, um, irregularities when it comes to punctuation, um, could participate in the theme of the poem in terms mm. of trying to come to terms with, uh, what, you know, the world without us, trying to come to terms with death? Even, even the hyena could be purposeful because the hyena is a pretty interesting animal.
4: Mm.
2: In that, uh, I just think there are a lot of projections onto the hyenas. In Disney movies, for example, the hyena is always um, nefarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Huh. I mean, the way in which she read it, I took it that the laugh was connected to this us, to yeah. beloved rascal and the narrator.
3: Also, it's very difficult to drink and laugh at the same time at least dangerous, you know. It's a it's a big, it's kind of a meme on Twitter where the spit take, you know, so-called spit take, somebody says something funny to you while you're drinking your coffee and then you laugh and you spit out your coffee, sometimes on the person that just said the funny thing to you. <laughs> so since it's difficult to drink and laugh at the same time and there's a comma, I think we tend to think that watch Hyenas drink rain and laugh means they're drinking rain and we're laughing. And I must say that I definitely see the hyenas drinking puddles of rain. I mean, I I, I don't know. I mean, I like your idea, Sam, of them lifting up their uh, heads and drinking the straight rain. That's not how I see it in my mind.
0: Right. Dig it. They're like drinking from a puddle. I mean, hyenas are sort of sorrowful creatures. I, I feel that there's mm. a sorrowfulness to their um, walk of walk or trot or path of life. And they're scavengers, I think. So they, yeah. they
3: might scavenge their water off of a puddle as much as their food off of a dead
0: impala. <laughs> yeah, or a wilder beast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean um just to look at this idea of the beloved rascal um mm. maybe then beloved rascal again you know no comma you know it's a, there are a lot of commas missing blah 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 mm. we we will find each other again i think that's interesting so there's been some separation or mm. i mean it is true when mm. you die so let's say sparrow um you know you and i we die yeah right we're friends i've known you a while i love Truth. you Sparrow. decades yes i love yeah. you and so i'm dead you're dead mm. i mean how how is there a registry how do i find you again maybe uh maybe we'll find each other again
3: Maybe it's the law of attraction. You're just uh, attracted like atoms are attracted to other atoms. Is people you remember and you find yourself just pulling towards them like a, two spores floating through the air that happen to merge. That's how uh-huh. I picture it. <laughs>
0: well, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't think I've ever really particularly bothered to picture it. I've just sort of assumed that, uh, when I pop off all my, all my late animals and all my family oh. and friends that, you know, but I think that also is a sort of, that may be, um, inaccurate to the extent <laughs> that maybe, you know, within the cycles of rebirths, maybe they're already, you know, re-entered the game re-entered the story contest
3: but i think you know according to certain psychics you know you're going to marry your wife like another 25 times at least you know you're you find the same people like you know we probably knew each other in previous lives and that's why we're friends now in this life because we have that karma the karma draws you back to the same person over and over again like Mm -hmm. to the beloved laugh it's a it's a very good point that I think should be made explicitly that we haven't said yet that this is mm. in some sense, a love poem and, mm-hmm. and should be recognized as that it's a cosmic poem. Apparently it's a political poem. I feel, but mm-hmm. it's maybe ultimately a love poem. And maybe that's why it's most successful on that level. I would, to my mind,
1: a oh, huh? little
3: rascal It's a great thing. I mean, if, Anybody were to call you beloved rascal, you would be utterly seduced by it. It's just a lovely thing to say to someone.
0: Gosh, I think you're right. I think I also this idea of sitting under the trees has a little bit of the Omar Kayan. Oh, yeah. To it. that, yeah, it's a let, very let cordial alone the, kind of yeah. Let alone Adam and Eve. <laughs>
4: uh, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I like the, uh, the shift in the tone. It's uh, somewhat lugubrious and the, the trudging at the beginning. And and then we do end on this comedic note with the laughter and Sparrow. It is a love poem. Um There's a marriage, spiritual marriage of sorts at the end. Mm. There's something very lovely about it. Something I uh-huh.
0: appreciate. Yeah. I think it's a, you know, going back to what you said, I guess, Andrew, and also, yeah, just looking at this, it seems like it's a poem in three parts, mm-hmm. right? So there's, you know, the first part, which we're not crazy about. Then you have the introduction of the two-minded creature, and then the hypothesis of one half of humanity um, fighting for greedy masters, the other half, you know, repairing the damage, and then, you know, more talk of of that team, um, you know, which I believe joy or the narrator's sympathy lies with, you know, the cooking fires, and then, you know, there's lovers' trysts. Yeah. Um, I yeah, yeah, I was just circle lovers just
3: because I think it, to me it's a little bit like you kind of look back at your life. You think of all your lovers, all the people. I mean, I know how many exactly how many people I slept with, which is 11. And, you know, it didn't go that well in general, but I, at least I know the number. And, um, and but there's one, you know, out of those 11, there's one that is the beloved rascal. So the, the, the lover's tryst is the point the kind of the experimentation part of your life where you have to sleep with lots of people if you have the ability to. You know, if it's not that era of AIDS or something. And you have to sort of see what's going on. You have to have romances. And yet there's one person usually, you know, that, that you come back to at least in your mind and, and sometimes in real life, too.
0: Uh-huh. Excellent. Yeah. I,
3: and that's I, I the like third it. part, as you we were going to say. I think maybe then beloved rascal begins the third part. Yeah, I kind of basically, and also I'm interested in the ways these short lines make the uh, transitions, right, between the, 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 the parts of the poem of oh, grief, yeah. of grief mm-hmm. and heartbreak and that line, short line ends the first part of the poem.
1: Mm-hmm. Then,
3: human industry dash that part ends the second part of the poem and then the third part starts with a short line maybe then beloved rascal mm-hmm. so that there's something about that she's doing with the line lengths that's that is kind of signaling these these turns and twists and that, to me that's why she doesn't use punctuation is because it's all one thought it's all one continual unreeling narrative this poem i mean once you put a period at the end it seems a little unnecessary but i must <laughs> say it does look right that period at the end now you know the poem is over it finally had a period
0: <laughs> uh-huh yeah i mean i can dig that for sure you know that she's just sort of like throwing it out you know just like sparks off a wheel um it's just this is how it happened so it ha- so it's closer to you know one maybe as a as uh, as a poet you know, seeks continually to move away from writing and toward enacting. So this maybe is, is something closer to giving that verve. So enacting that's, the punctuation, you mean? Well, no, just enacting the the words coming upon one. You know, um, one isn't necessarily checking like, oh, should I put a comma there? Oh, wait, uh, is this ended? Oh, it's a dash, not a, co- you know, like those parts of punctuation structuring and reinforcing grammar and things like that. It's a, maybe something that comes after, right? But maybe there is no after. Like she wanted to uh, keep it as direct, as close to the event as possible. I, I,
3: I see what you mean. Yeah. She didn't want to revise. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm
0: interested
3: I, in that revision. There's something I'm reading about. Some, I think maybe I'm reading this. My friend Ada Calhoun wrote this book about her father, Peter Sheldahl, the art critic, mm. and Frank O'Hara. Mm. And in the book, she's talking about how Frank O'Hara didn't believe in revision. He was mm-hmm. counseling someone, a friend of his, just leave it like it is. That's how, that's good enough. That's, that's how it came out. No revision. I mean, Frank O'Hara is a very brilliant person. And, you know, I think a great poet. So he could get away with it. I think most of us, unfortunately, do have to spend a lot of time. Do you revise
2: a lot? Uh,
3: I mean, I revise my prose eternally, like endlessly. More or less, nothing is ever finished. But then there's a point where I suddenly feel something's finished. I send it in to usually the Sun magazine is mostly what I write for and then they accepted, or actually I'm just going through this process right now. I wrote an essay about time called On Time. It took me maybe five years to write, three years, four years. And they just accepted it. And now they just this morning, I think I, they, they sent me the final version as it's going to appear in the magazine, gave me one more chance to revise it. And sure enough, I revised a couple, lines. I use the word lovely too much. I don't know if I use it in my in this podcast too much, but when I write, it's a word that I use without thinking. And I mm. just, I wanted to get rid of that one of the the word lovely in, the, in this essay. So my poems, I really don't exact, I do revise them. I mean, I think maybe this morning, yesterday I was revising some poems. I don't consciously revise them. My poems are really short and Usually they're either they either suck or they're okay. But yes, I do. You know, when I reread them, I do sometimes. um, uh, Yeah, I'm. I used to not believe in revision. I had a transformation that same summer that I met Joy Harjo. That was when I had my breakthrough. The summer of '85 is when I suddenly understood. uh, Suddenly. achieve the ability to revise. I suddenly fell in love with revision, would be a better way to put it. Hmm.
0: In terms of Joy Hardrow's poem, and something that is kind of extra textual, you know, and has a kind of quality of a sort of revision or edit, maybe a little bit, is the title. The title yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. without that preposition what do you think about that, Andrew?
2: You know, I, hearkening back to my earlier remark, I see the poem is, uh, at least uh, at the beginning, um, composed in a key of grief or the anticipatory grief of, of loss, uh, loss of one's own life or maybe of it, um, to be without. But it reminds me of that um, haunting Robert Frost line from the poem Oven Birds. What to make of a diminished thing? Well, I love that line. Yeah, I think Isn't about a that great line? I know that line. Um, the oven bird sings, and all but birds. What to make of a diminished thing? But uh, I feel that um, the title relates to that sentiment. Um, it, what what what, how, what do we make of um, loss? And the the poem, in a very short space, um, explores these different theologies uh, and uh, these different responses to the existential condition of being without. Mm -hmm.
4: Mm.
2: That's how
0: I connect. Uh So it's it's got a timbre of elegy. It's elegiac Mm. a little bit, but it's got all that futurity, like you pointed out, the repetition of will, maybe then, will, you know. But that too, you know, the elegy is a form of protest, you know. Elegy is a form of Hmm. Argument of denial of fighting the That's a good that, point. yeah like Cuchullin you know fighting the waves it is um it is an impossible exchange an impossible task but nevertheless the highest
3: yeah my father my one hundred and two year old father who you know never showed that much interest in poetry has lately been rewriting. The uh, Dylan Thomas poem, uh, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. Oh,
2: the hmm. yeah.
3: yeah, he's uh, he's quoting it. He doesn't realize. He's revising it. But he can't read mm-hmm. at this point. His eyes are going bad. So he knows it from memory. And I wrote down, I wish I could remember. I? I know he uses the phrase dimming of the light. Uh, rage. No, actually, in the latest version, that he he changes it also. In the latest version, he said howl, howl against the dimming of the light. <laughs> he's kind of nice. quoting Allen Ginsberg via uh-huh. Dylan Thomas, but it's it is a kind of elegy for himself that he's writing, and also I think he's he's talking about the fact that the light really is. Uh, dying for him because he can see less and less all the time so you know it's his protest it is a he's you know he's a communist he's going to protest
2: you should uh, share once. with your father the the milton sonnet when i consider how my light spent yeah,
0: on his blindness in this dark world oh, and okay. wide and that one talent, which is death to hide, lodged in me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therein my maker. You know it by heart? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Mm-hmm.
3: That's the one they also serve who only stand and
2: wait? Yeah. No. Yeah. In all honesty, what do you make of nailing it all about it?
3: I mean, to me, it really is completely a political a uh, metaphor about this world we're in right now this political state in the USA which is you know about half the the electorate likes these uh, you know billionaires and wants to serve them uh and the other half like Biden gets into office and he's like I got to try to nail this mother back together I got to try to make this country work again after uh, Trump has been uh, pulling it apart with his crowbar,
0: yeah. So I mean, I thought that, I thought my is you know just repairing, like nailing it back together. That's repairing, repairing the world, and,
3: yeah, healing, repairing. Yeah, I mean, it's something that's they say right. in uh, the Kabbalah, something mm. about uh, Tikkun Olam, repairing the world
1: without. The world will keep trudging through time without us. When we lift from the story contest to fly home, we will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. Maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature and know why half the world fights righteously for greedy masters and the other half is nailing it all back together through the smoke of cooking fires, lovers, trysts, and endless human industry. Maybe then, beloved rascal, we will find each other again in the timeless weave of breathing. We will sit under the trees in the shadow of Earth's sorrows, watch hyenas
0: drink rain and laugh. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.